All right, you ready? I'm ready. Let's do this. Welcome to The Loyalist Connections. Established 1783. Today, we're going to explore St. John, New Brunswick. Sean, what do we know about St. John, New Brunswick? Well, we know the first wave of migration didn't just settle in Nova Scotia. When the Black Lotus arrived, they established other historical settlements across Canada, and one of these was in St. John, New Brunswick. Did you know that St. John was also known as Loyalist City? No, I didn't know that. So one thing that is interesting as well, too, is that when it was settled, New Brunswick was part of Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. Well, when I was talking to family to identify whether I had connections to the area, I learned that my great-grandmother was born in Dorchester, New Brunswick. I learned recently that my great-grandmother's brother, my great-uncle Royce Gabriel, lived in St. John. You know, I'm going to have to spend uh, some more time learning about my connections to Loyal City. So on, I've spoken about my grandmother numerous times on the on our journey, and being from Weymouth Falls, which is close to Digby. My great-aunt lived in Conway, which is just outside of Digby, and she has family in St. John as well, too. So I actually have family in St. John right now that I have never met. For me personally, I used to travel during the summer months from Yarmouth to Digby and take the Bay Ferry to St. John for the Loyalist Festival basketball tournament. It's uh, ironic, I was traveling to St. John for five-plus years, but never realized the connection with the name. Wow. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm wondering how many more communities we go to when we don't even know these connections. So it's uh, great to find these during our journey. So to, to help us kick off this leg of our journey, Sean, please introduce our special guest. Well, we learned so much more about our journey from this individual. Please welcome Graham Nickerson back to set the stage for St. John, New Brunswick. Graham, please tell us about your connection to St. John, New Brunswick. Yeah, so St. John is one of those places that doesn't get the respect that it uh, it's due, really, in terms of not only um, black loyalism, but the, in the loyalist story. Speaking as Nova Scotians, we never really think about New Brunswick and its loyalist connections. Yeah. <laughs> connections in general, yeah. yeah there you go. <laughs> so, actually, uh, St. John starts to get settled in... 1782, so some of the early Loyalists who had up come up to the mouth of the St. John River, and so there are Black Loyalists with them as well, even at that time. And so um, what happens is it basically across the whole, the whole Loyalist settlement, you have this sort of class division, and um, as part of that, that's how, how New Brunswick splits off and St. John becomes the capital, essentially, of New Brunswick, the Loyalist capital, at least. And so it, it plays a very key role in Loyalism, and it does have a significant Black Loyalist population. So what do you mean about the beginning. Loyalist capital? So St. John considers itself to be the Loyalist capital. Oh, that's interesting. For, for good reason, um, because... Essentially, New Brunswick breaks off from Nova Scotia at the behest of the Loyalist elite in the province who see the planter, existing planter culture in Nova Scotia is not sharing the same aims as the Loyalists. So having their own province allows the Loyalists to have much stronger political say 
and 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 really the cultural trajectory of both provinces sort of they're not they don't go far apart but they do sort of head in different directions so what about yourself specifically do you have any connections to, to St. John well that's a funny funny story so I do <laughs> and I never yeah, realized you, that yeah well there you go right it, 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 you know it's <laughs> we're all connected literally right yep yeah, so there are a lot of loyalists and black loyalists who headed up to New Brunswick after the debacle in Shelburne, right? So oh, that's right. so you have the the population. That's the thing is like it's Shelburne, Shelburne race riot, big black hole. No, nothing else happens. Blacks go to Sierra Leone, and in between, it's like, well, where did where did everyone uh-huh. go? Where mm-hmm. what happened after that? And, you know, so why are there so few blacks in Shelburne County now? Well, they migrated to other places. Back in 1783-84, they're moving on to probably, I wouldn't say Halifax. I mean, maybe some did, but probably over to Digby Mm -hmm. and then across the Bay of Fundy to St. John and up the St. John River Valley. Wow. At least part part of them. Wow. I mean, like when that race ride was important. Yeah, like we don't know, the, we didn't really understand the significance of that when we, you know, did the first episode. But it's so important to the intermigration across like the Atlantic provinces. Yeah. Like I swear, like we yeah, thought it's... the intermigration like ended in and around you know that southern Nova Scotia, right? But no, you're saying it it, it trickled out to New Brunswick. Yeah, yeah. So Benjamin Marston, the head surveyor in Shelburne, who gets chased out of out of Shelburne, who gets the Basically, the Shelburne race riot is hung around his neck right? as being his fault. Um, he ends up in New Brunswick. And then eventually he ends up in Sierra Leone. So you have a very mobile population that's just trying to figure out how to live in British North America. So my connections not doesn't stretch back. As far as I know, it doesn't go back that far. There probably are stories, but I, I just don't know them. But as my, so I'm a member of the New Brunswick Black History Society. And so I went to a picnic in a, a settlement, the oldest black settlement in New Brunswick called Willow Grove. And so I'm there and we start talking about like family. And I have a, in my family, there's a, a woman named Oida. And that, so that's a pretty r- remarkable name. You, yeah. you remember it. And so he had a Oida in his family, and then, and I think he was a Downey, is his last name. <laughs> and so it ended up, yeah, see, like... <laughs> Those Downies, and they're everywhere. And uh, so, so any, what happened is, so my grandfather, uh, Merle Bruce, was part of a tap-dancing duo called uh, Bruce and Adams. And so his... His uh, relative was Georgie Adams, the other part of that tap dancing group. And so those not only did Adams and Bruce have a business relationship, they had relatives who intermarried and those sorts of things. So I was at my own family reunion and I didn't even know it until. (laughs) Wow. Wow. So literally connected, right? It's just, it's amazing. Wow. So when they first settled, how many black loyalists would have been there? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, So there were, you know, probably hundreds of black loyalists, free blacks. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to say, you know, hundreds, 
maybe upwards towards a thousand servants and indentured blacks and slaves and who came through that area. I, I, I'm not sure of exactly the number. It's really, really hard to to track to put, pin that number down as a specific. Nonetheless, it's a sizable so, group. It's not. Oh, it's significant number. Yeah, significant, absolutely. So. Yeah, and we always have a hard time establishing how many people actually settled for obvious yeah. reasons, right? Yeah. You know, it's really interesting how, you know, getting an accurate depiction, we're never going to fully have them, but we just know that they were they were there. Yeah, and yeah. in large large enough numbers to be, um, to have a footprint on the political landscape of New Brunswick yeah, for another 30 or 40 years. Wow. That's a pretty long time span. Uh, we understand that when the Black Loyalists arrived in St. John, uh, St. John was part of Nova Scotia, is that correct? When, so up until uh, 1784, Nova Scotia and New Brunswick were together. But as a result of the civil unrest, and there was a lot all over Nova Scotia, uh, that you were fighting not only between Loyalists and non-Loyalists or whites and blacks, but within the Loyalists, the upper echelon, of loyalist society, um, there was a group of loyalists, and I wrote down the name because it's it just kind of tells you. Uh, I think it's it's like the forty five. It's called the forty five uh, gentlemen, or sorry, no, it's the fifty five. And so these guys are like we're the fifty five high ranking elites, right? And we're gonna. So I think you find that in most of the loyalists settlements early on as you get this elite group who want who basically are like well we're going to take all the good stuff and run everything and and everyone else is going to basically be servants to us right and mm-hmm. and have it be a plantation system that in which a very few number of elites run everything much like the southern states uh, ended up looking yeah. right and um so basically, you end up with this sort of inner, almost a civil war between. I mean, without, I'm sure there was some violence, but not not open warfare. But it right. went right to the to the foreign office of back in London. That it's like, how are we going to make this work? Because we have two very different views mm-hmm. of how how this is going to work. And what happens is New Brunswick gets par- partitioned off. And that kind of alleviates sort of that the stress because it, the the fifty five eventually do. Become Are you saying New Brunswick was more progressive than Nova Scotia? No, 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 no. Okay, okay. no, they're they're <laughs> no, they end they end up being so. <laughs> the best way to look at it is like you have Nova Scotia, which is sort of a Yankee mm-hmm. uh, or a very uh, New England type culture. New Brunswick ends up being more loyalist and elitist. And then Prince Edward Island, or St. John's Island at the time, is a legal slave plantation. So, what? Yeah, what? so so Prince Edward Island is, is had legalized slavery in as a slave society with brutal slave codes exactly like you would find in the southern states of Caribbean. So, it sounds like we're going to have you back to talk about PEI in, in the future. Oh, yeah, for sure, yeah. What? I knew there was a black population, but I never knew that legalized aspect of slavery. Oh, no, it was brutal. Bru- like, you won't find it on Anna Green Gables, but it was... 
it was it was horrible. And and with all the issues going on right now, I don't know. If, I mean, you guys must be aware of what's going on with PEI. Yeah. So I mean, I've never run into overt racism in PEI, but I can't. I knowing what I know, I, it's not a hard stretch for me to sort of say, well, you know, there's some issues there that probably have been left. I, I think I think it's safe to say we shouldn't be surprised if we run into overt racism anywhere yeah, in Canada. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty, pretty, pretty you know, fair points, statement. <laughs> I mean, hey, it happens. Yeah. So, hey, Graham, yeah, so. Uh, you know, just judging by the time frame, like the 1784, like that corresponds with the like the Shelburne race riot, or as we previously discussed, you know, religious riot. Uh, like, were there yep. any other? waves of migration that settled in that area in St. John's, or was it just the Loyalists? I think we'll deal with a couple topics all okay. at once. So the St. John River is a major artery into the heart of what was then the continent, yeah. right? So you have the St. Lawrence Seaway to the north, but if you were coming up and you wanted to get into the, the tongue of Quebec that's there now, like Rimouski and those areas, you'd go up the St. John River, right, and go up through there because it was shorter and uh or shorter you could it's hard to say but it was especially in the winter time when it was frozen over it would be like a highway you could basically walk or or uh take a sled right. or whatever so it was a very prime piece of real estate st john because you not only controlled entrance to st john river but you also controlled the fur trade. And so it was very early on. Interesting. So the earliest appearance of black people in that region would have been like 1608 with Matthew DaCosta or other, other blacks who were traveling around exploring with... He was a busy man. Yeah, he, he got around. And, uh, and so it would have been Champlain and, and various blacks that we don't really know who... Uh, but there was a presence, a black presence, and, and that's something that academics really still have to continue to flesh out as more records become available. So then in uh, 1685, I think it is, let me just check, because the dates, it's just kind of, I can't even, my mind just doesn't keep them, because it's like, I can't believe that yeah. it's that far back ago. So 1696, uh, Benjamin Church, so he's a he's a basically a New England um, militia captain. And uh, he goes and raids in the St. John River Valley against the French and runs across a black who's living with First Nations on the river. And the story is that he was kidnapped by natives from Cape Cod or somewhere around there. But it's very, very uh, uh, Eurocentric, the narrative. So chances are it's just as likely he ran away. And I mean, that's what was going on even back then is like their blacks are running away. Yeah. Whenever they get a chance, and uh, and because they're multilingual, most blacks had command of several languages, so they're very useful to whatever colonial power or the First Nations themselves would be like, okay, well, this guy knows English or French or English and French, you become and, an asset. Yeah. So I'm going to drop another bomb because it's I'm sure you guys will appreciate it. So the back in those days, they spoke what was called trade Bosque, and so there is some written record on from a there's a french priest who makes some comments on basically the french and spanish and english they're using a language called trade bosque which was also used off the coast of africa so it's likely that blacks and first nations here were communicating using a language that included english french spanish african words and 
at First Nation words. And so it's we, our ancestors, who are doing this work, who are highly valued. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's the, like the victim narrative like we talked about. We don't talk about our ability with language and how we were, you know, sought after for some of these for, for some of these skills, right? You mentioned the fur trade. We were probably essential with that as well, too. Yeah, yeah. We were part of the, you know, if you were going to head off and do a venture with that involved First Nations communication, you would have an African with you because they probably were here before and they spoke mm-hmm. the language. Right. So that gets us, what, the 1696. Uh, so then you have the uh, so the planners come up. So uh, Joshua Major, who yep. was prominent in Halifax. There's a Majorville here on the St. John River Valley. Uh, Major was a Huguenot, so he helped establish a Huguenot settlement on the St. John River, mm-hmm. and then facilitated trading slaves from the Caribbean up into these new plantations. So that's in the 1760s. There's a record of uh, of like slave resistance by, by a slave called Old West or something like that. Who The guy's lamenting, I can't get the guy to work for me and he doesn't do the work. If, yeah, I don't feel very sorry for him. And uh, <laughs> He was disgruntled. <laughs> he was disgruntled. And that's, so, I mean, even in the 1760s, we're resisting, right? Yeah. There's records of it. Then, of course, you have the Black Loyalists in 1783, 80, you know, on 82 onwards. But you also have, there aren't any known settlements for Maroons in New Brunswick, but we did end up with a number of Black refugees okay. from the War of 1812. Okay. We, we figured that. It just seems like it would make sense. They came to this region. Yeah, so the, the basically Halifax couldn't handle all of them, and so they had to try and shunt off a number of them. So they settled in St. John, were held in St. John for a while, and then had received settlement off to the east of St. John. Okay. And then the next big sort of sequential migration would be runaway slaves yes. from the U.S. So that they're done, there's an under, path in the Underground Railroad that comes into, by sea, goes in directly into St. John, but also overland across the uh, Pasquale Bay, St. Corrier, into a black community actually on the outside of uh, St. Andrews, and then off into St. John. So, wow. So, given all the uh, the movement and the, the migration in and out, who are some you know significant families or figures within the community there in St. John? So, I grabbed uh, at least in the Loyalist time. I would I would first, I guess, the most famous or should be famous is a guy named Edward Bannister. So Edward Bannister was probably the grandson of a black loyalist. And he was, so he was born in, I think, like the 18, say the 1820s. He left New Brunswick in the 1840s as um, <clears throat> there was a, a big wave of out-migration back then. And so he, he was part of that. Settled in Boston, ended up being a... Um, he was like a hairdresser, and he did a few different things, but he, he started to paint. And and I think he even he did, like, photo, photographs and stuff, too, later on. He married a woman, and um, they ran, so their hair salons ended up being stations on the Underground Railroad. So then his art gets noticed. He becomes a, uh, a renowned artist in the United States. He's the first African-American to win the National Art Prize. They try to keep it from him when he when they find out he's black, but the other artists say no, 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 you're not doing that. He's getting his, his award. You guys familiar with the movie Glory? Yes. Yes, I've seen yeah. it for ages. Yeah, but, so, yeah. So Glory, um, 
what in that scene where the soldiers refused to to fight because they didn't get their pay, Edward Bannister was in the background selling paintings and providing funds to the soldiers so that they could continue to protest. So he was, I think he's the guy who get, when Lincoln does the Emancipation Proclamation, he's the guy who gets the telegraph and hands it, hands it to Frederick Douglass. Uh, he's part of, of this black intellectual group who are pushing for emancipation and empowerment of black people. So he's probably the best unknown black loyalist that you've never heard about. If you're not, even most New Brunswickers don't know who he is. Wow. So yeah, that's, a, yeah, that's he, amazing. So quite, quite incredible. Yeah. So we're actually, uh, there's been some movement to try and get him recognized on a stamp or something along those lines. Cause it, there's like, we, there's no statues to him anywhere. Not a, in Rhode Island, there's a gallery named after him. But in his own province, there's no... It's it's funny, we don't recognize these significant black individuals in Atlantic Canada in general. Yeah, yeah. So, and there's another black engineer, I guess you would call him, who invented the snowplow that you see on railway locomotives. That flange was invented in Fredericton by a black engineer. So the other thing I wanted to say is in glory, that end scene on the, the attack on Fort Wagner, there are like half a dozen black maritimers who were part of that assault who are in the Union Army. And really? Yeah. So just recently we we uncovered a guy from, um, I think his last name's Grant, who, who uh, died during the charge on Fort Wagner, bayonet through the throat. So like to me, it's like if I had known that that was our story when I watched that the first time, the impact that it would have had on my on me and my life probably would have been significant. Yeah, it's funny having that history not told, you know, the impact that it's left on on us, right? Yeah, yeah. And it, I mean, it's, and it, that movie, you know, it's almost, there's so much of it that's that's a black story. I'll bring it back to the Black Loyalist just for a second. So Thomas Peters is often considered to be like a black New Brunswicker, black Loyalist New Brunswicker. So it would be... New Brunswick? I mean, he was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so they also claim, they also claim... Thomas Peters. And he did a significant number, amount of, of boosting here. He did end up in, when they got frustrated in Digby, they did move to St. John and petition for land up here. And it was the lack of action up here that then Thomas Peters went to London ah, and petitioned. Man, uh, man, that, that makes sense. sense. And yeah. then that's how we got to uh, the uh, ships to go back to Sierra Leone. Right. Yeah. So you're telling yeah. me that you know oh, things okay. like history could be different. I think it could have been different in a lot of places, if they had, I mean, Shelburne could have been different if they had embraced black yeah. labor as a, I mean, there's just so many ways that it just, white paranoia and and racism, and it just, and it's not the only, like, Shelburne, Nova Scotia is not the only place where people lost their minds yeah. and oh. and uh, did stupid stuff because they just couldn't see a world in which equality was a reality. I mean, I yeah. think we're still living in it, too, to some degree. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, a glass half empty kind of guy would. I, no, I mean a realist would say we've got to work. We've got a ways to go. They just disguise it now. It's different, right? Yeah, yeah. We're still. Yeah. Uh, so the community itself, Graham. Like you know, when we talked about Burstown and Shelburne, how it was kind of defined in that sense. What was the community defined like? What did they do on a day to day basis? How did they survive in that sense? What was their life like? I think you'd find it's fairly similar. 
to uh, an urban center like Halifax, okay. which they had the same sort of issues as elsewhere, where they probably had the worst property in St. John. They were, you know, shunted off to the the outskirts. Um, their land also, their country plots, it's very similar to the Annapolis Valley, where your land is all day to get there out in the country, and it's garbage. There are basically the the blacks in St. John get settled up river in a community, well, a number of communities, but Narapis would be, if you look on a map, there's Kingston Peninsula and in and around there was a significant black community. There are a number of black locations there where they settled. And so they're probably, um, the economy was probably uh, river-based labor, like boating Sailing boats up and down the river, loading and unloading boats, agricultural help and that sort of thing. But they were definitely placed to be a source of labor and not to be uh, landowning yeomen in an equal equal society. So, But you mentioned that skilled labor aspect. It was still very skilled labor in that sense. And just try to reemphasize the fact that they weren't getting compensated for that, right? Right, right. I mean, that that was a, a steady... Um, fight to not go broke and have to indenture yourself to a white person and then find yourself headed off to the Caribbean to be re-enslaved down there. Or to find yourself in, you know, it's uncertain the uncertainty. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's... Uh, and so, you know, like we looked at the... I remember Burstown Shelburne, but, you know, the church was a central gathering spot there. Would have been similar in St. John. Church is like a, a pillar in the community as well. It seems to be, I haven't run across anything that specifically says, hey, you know, here's here's the church and, and here's the congregations that form around it. Not in St. John, but in, there is, um, so Willow Grove, the, like I said before, is the oldest black settlement in New Brunswick. And it was, I think it's like 1802 or 1803. So Elm Hill, sorry. Elm Hill, 1806. And so it was, it had, you know, it was on the order of 100 blacks living there and it that actually it grew in size for a while and they had a number of churches there and i suspect similar to other places that religion played a big role and i just haven't looked in depth and there are a number of of new brunswick's black scholars who could probably provide who have an internal view in the community and can tell right. you sort of like the dirty laundry because there's a lot of it a lot of the interreligious stuff is it's pretty uh, controversial, right? That's, I mean, Thomas Peters ends up in New Brunswick because the Anglican Church boots them off their land in Digby, right? So, yeah. oh yeah, it, I remember reading that story. It was quite, a, yeah, it was well, not that uh, was it David George and Shelburne, but it was similar in that sense, right? Yeah, and David George ends up coming up and down the St. John River as well and, and establishing yeah. his religious network. So he's up right. as far as Fredericton, preaching up here. And probably further. Wow. I mean, we just don't know. Now, is that before or after the uh, the, the race riot? I think it's after. So really? I think it's after. So That's I mean, it would be because there wasn't a lot of time between David George showing up in 1783 yeah. and then 1784, pretty much right away. Uh, but he could have been. I mean, he was a he was a itinerant preacher, so he he probably traveled around. I don't. I just don't know if he ended up up here this far. I, I'm fairly certain it was it was a bit later because he had to he had to have um, permission from the governor. So it would have been later because he didn't even have a governor until until he broke off. Right. So he would have had to come up here after after 1784 partition, come to Fredericton to get a paper to tell him that it was all right for him to preach, and then so he had the same sort of thing. He preached, and whites yeah. and blacks would show up, and 
And so planted the seeds for the Baptist church all up and down the St. John River Valley. And then that, because there weren't any Scottish Baptist preachers here, the, the Scots, or sorry, it was Presbyterians, I believe. So the Scots sort of were drawn into this Baptist church. And now around here, is the most of the, the pre- predominant church, I think, for Scots is our Baptist. That's gonna, that was going to be a follow-up question. Cool. That's very yeah. interesting. That is. Yeah, yeah I, I think we tied that no. in. Yeah, but that's... Yeah, so I mean, there's a from the 1820. So there's a great fire up here in 1825, and Richard Preston, yeah, Preston of Preston, <laughs> right, is in Miramichi preaching what? when this happens, and so I mean, these guys are traveling okay, around. Just a quick question. Now, back then, how would these guys get around? Like, yeah, like I'm just by, amazed by how they travel. By by, boat? Everything was by boat, and and that's the thing is like we our blacks had a really big impact in boating and shipping. A lot of sailors, boatmen. There, I mean, that's the thing is, you look at the records and way going way back, and as soon as First Nations retreat from the coast, that the settlers basically put black slaves in that spot. Mm-hmm. So they're doing all the, they're moving all the the things up and down yeah. the river, and uh, and there's there's like I have a bunch of quotes where it's like you can't get from point A to point B without a good black what. Do, and get you there. Larice, Larice, do you remember when Bruce Johnson said that about Yarmouth? And I was just like kind of oblivious yeah. to Yarmouth. I was like, well, so why would they live like in the south end of Yarmouth? And he's like, well, it's for work. And then, but also that means that they're next to these boats, they're acquiring these skills. And it's something like, and I'm going to quote you, Graham, oh, poor me, oh, poor my kind of thing. But like, we. That's not the the reality of it. No, and the other thing, you know, they were getting these skilled labor, yeah. right? Well, think about it too. Like, yeah. just given all the movement, like how busy was the, the St. John River? Like, how busy was with all those ships moving around? And the interesting thing about St. John, if you've ever been there, is we have the reversing falls, so you can only get through there at slack tide. So a couple times a day, mm-hmm. the water's flat calm and the there's no falls. Like you can't. It's it's crazy. I've been in there on boats, and it's it's crazy. You can't. You'd never be able to canoe through there. Really? Well, maybe maybe people back then had the skill that they could do it much better. So you would have to have like you'd have to have people standing around slack tide. You get all your blacks and First Nations and and poor white sailors, and everybody's racing through the falls to, to beat the the tide. So it would have been very labor-intensive and, and a specialized, and which may explain why the blacks were all living close on the river. Right. Can you give us some of those quotes? Uh, maybe not today, but like at some point, can you like send them to us? Because I think as we're discovering, there's a significant amount of history uh, with the connection to St. John and New Brunswick as a whole. Yeah, there's, it's, there's a fairly common pattern that's parallel for both colonies that that is parallel with what's going on. Like I'm, I'm, I like to think that I know more than the average person on this stuff, but you do, <laughs> you just keep, you keep every time you scratch the surface. Yeah. I, I thanks. But I mean, it's just, it's like, uh, was it Dunning Kruger? The more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. Yeah. And you just keep looking and it's like, Oh, well, you know, the Maroons show up in Nova Scotia and, and we're taught like, Oh, in 1796, the Maroons show up. There's a whole big long story that go, that goes into Jamaica that's about the Maroons and yeah, our society is it where we are the enslaved, we're the we're enslavers, we're the colonized, we're the colonizers. We weren't 
it's not like we weren't all abolitionists when we came here. We were chasing, chasing bank, right? Yeah. So it, it's it just, continues it's, to this day. I and, like chasing yeah. bank. We <laughs> were right. No kidding, right? So we have to we have to keep reevaluating our history, and we're I think we're at the point now where we can you know okay, poor people had it rough, white or black. Racism was real. I mean, you, yeah. you'd be only the most uneducated people now would argue that it wasn't a factor. But then, there's like, people had strategies to get around that stuff. And, mm-hmm. and I mean, frankly, people who are light-complected, like all, like, all of us are generally fairly light-complected. We were privileged within the black community. Mm-hmm. And we were generally, we thought of ourselves to be elevated above slaves. So... You have That's that, the complexity that, of it. And it's still, like, colorism is a thing. Oh, yeah. And I grew up with it. Yeah, it talks about this, you know, but if you think about, you know, plantation days, right? And where certain people were working, certain people were in the field, right? Um, I've always said this, and Larissa and I joke about this, which is not funny, but we know where we would be. We'd be in the house. Yep. And, you know, it's uh, it's... That's the reality of it, right? And that's the complexity around it. And you're right; it's still there's still elements of that to this day. Yeah, and and we're just it's a it's a very nuanced and complicated story that we're just and we have to tell it. Well, I, yeah. I mean, that's, that's the exactly objective it. of this platform is to create that safe space. Like Sean and I, like you said, we talk about like this stuff all the time, and you know, we want to create a safe space for these stories and this history to be shared. Yep. It's time. So, yeah. can you tell us a little bit more about where the black community was settled uh, in proximity to the city center? Uh, did they get land? Did they own it? So, the, it it seems like in Shelburne, um, the military order of blacks got land, got town lots in the beginning. So, you said Shelburne. Right? You mean St. John? Like, no, like okay, Shelburne. Like, there are oh, Shelburneers okay. that, like, that's the thing. They it's did not, get it. No, yeah. I, there is a petition in the archives for Shelburne of the blacks who are like, who got their land. And, and the same thing in St. John, there are blacks who, who got land in town. That isn't to say then that, I mean, that's early on and it's not a linear, like it's, it's not always less free, more free. It's less free, even less free. And then there was a problem with the, te- with the country lots being so far away. In general, the town was laid out in a very stratified way in which I think along the waterfront is where the rich people had land and as you got further and further away it was poor uh-huh. people so but by uh 1785 blacks were in the saint john city charter blacks were prohibited from using the water yeah, so yeah, yeah. when was that so they weren't allowed to fish in, in the harbor um that seems fair no big deal and, and, and probably access to the waterway was cut off and the, I have some theories about that. You see the same thing happen in New York City, and so basically, what they're what's happening is they're like saying, "All right, we we've got all this white unskilled labor or semi skilled labor. Mm-hmm. How can we even this up so that we that these people are getting?" You don't mean even it up, though. <laughs> yeah. we, need, we, need, we need some white equity up in here, and yeah. yeah. So so then for the next right up until eighteen forty five or thereabouts. There are some pretty serious uh, limitations to black liberty within the city. So it's that's that's the reality of black existence in St. John. And 
probably explains sort of why you have places like Elm Hill popping up in which they can be free from white surveillance and, and have some Similar sort of virtual. Yeah. Yeah. Another, right. yes. Essentially the same kind of setup. Wow. And so, like, th- these, uh, these land in their possession, where is that today? Yeah, so Elm Hill still is a black community. It's, I think, the last remaining black community in New Brunswick that's predominantly black. And it is, it's it's a great place to go. And I highly recommend if you guys get a chance to go to the Elm yeah. Hill picnic, you go. And you'll find family there, probably. Uh, there is Willow Grove is a is a settlement from the 1812 refugees. And they were much, it's much like Preston. It's kind of like a combination of Preston and uh, and Birchtown, in which they uh, they didn't get issued ownership, land ownership. They right. got uh, certificates of settlement, and they had to pay out of pocket for the survey. And all the while, like Scots and Irishmen are showing up, and it's like, here's your land. <laughs> like, so I mean that yeah, that no one's gonna argue that Scots and and uh, Irish had a had a you know an enviable enviable position in uh, loyalist New Brunswick, but they did they did get preferential treatment compared to blacks yeah um and they also so those guys also got uh, in willow grove there's a there's a case of them getting swindled out of uh out of their land by so they if you guys are familiar with Stephen skinner and birchtown he sort of bought up all the land uh this there was another caretaker in in uh willow grove that did the same thing basically bought up all the property so, Crafty. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> sounds like some of the tactics just, used in uh in Beachville. Oh man, sounds like some of those Beachville tactics. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, no kidding. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, so, it's it's funny the tactics they keep reoccurring. It's not like they're uh, new, right? Uh, yeah, and so then I'm some sure. people might say like, "Oh, well, you should have known better." Like, well, there are too many options, right? Like, what are you going to do at this point, right? Yeah, well, you're, you know, if you if you have land up by the dump that nobody wants, you're stuck with it forever. Yeah. If somebody else wants it, then it gets gentrified and the yeah. prices go up and you can't yeah. afford the taxes if you decide not yeah. to sell. And so I, I drive around sometimes and I'm looking at farms and I'm like, what would my life be like if my family had gotten a farm? Generational wealth. Right? Back to that. Like my family, my family didn't get treated any better than yours. I was out at my grandparents' farm. It's like, stop right there. (laughs) (laughs) Said enough. And that is white privilege. Yeah. Right there. Yeah. And Uh, don't even, even, like, those people who say that stuff, it just doesn't even clue in. No. No. It's, it's, those are the ones you walk away from. Yeah. You You have to. So one of the things, Graham, we know that if we started looking at Nova Scotia, specifically around schools and things of that nature, one of the reoccurring themes is around segregation. So the reason I had a conversation around that, we were wondering what school systems would have looked like because we know here we didn't realize there were segregated schools. It wasn't really talked about. But I'm just wondering if you could provide any context around segregated schools or what segregation was like in general in St. John? There was um, a racial divide in in access to education. So um, I think it'd be fairly similar to what Nova Scotia experienced. Like there's records of early in the 1800s of there being schools for the poor, which which allowed blacks to be in there. But generally speaking, white kids or white parents didn't want their 
kids to be in school with blacks. So you have that kind of thing going on. There were black schools. I think they mid 18th or sorry mid 19th century. You start seeing black schools. I think probably if you were to, to dig into it, you would see that the same sort of day school experience that First Nations were, were dealing with. We were also having our culture destroyed. Mm-hmm. And so we did get our own school system. And I think that helped to preserve our community longer than, uh, than it otherwise would have persisted. Yeah. By the turn of the century, by the turn of the twentieth uh, century, there are schools, but you're you're also seeing that like white nationalism starting to crop up. So yeah. there's a lot of pushback. And in there, in the middle of that, so late late nineteenth um, century, even if you got a, a like a high school completion or whatever you got in those days, you weren't you couldn't go to college. It's very rare to be able to go to college. Mm-hmm. That's sort of the transition you see of specialized black labor, especially in the maritime industry. And I'm sure there are other industries where uh, the Industrial Revolution revolutionized that market sector. But because blacks were prevented from going into trade schools. So that's that's interesting because we couldn't obtain post-secondary education, but we also couldn't get go to trade school. My next question was going to be, well, what are the ways segregation existed? We already answered that. Right. Yes. So, yes. so um, there's a saying out there that something like in Nova Scotia, segregation was was by law, and in New Brunswick, it was by custom. So there still was segregated schooling here, but it wasn't officially on the books. Right. But you just you written rules. Right. You were pressured out of if you were in the wrong went to the wrong school, you didn't stay there mm-hmm. until you found found the right one. So, given the challenges like, of segregation and racism that we uh, like just discussed, what are the lasting effects of this of the segregation and racism in like St. John and like New Brunswick more broadly? St. John has a like I know a few older St. Johners, Black St. Johners, and that and the experience is is varied, right? Some don't see that they they existed in a racist system; they felt very very mobile. Others, not so much, right? They felt the they felt the burden of the limits placed on them, and I think I mean that's if you who knows what the circumstances are and how like if the right right kind of black guy, and you live in the right spot or you you have the right patronage or whatever you, you have not to take away from anybody's accomplishments, but there it wasn't uniform, and whatever those factors were. So I think the the. St. John community, black community, is sort of suffering from the same things we just talked about, is that there has been mobility, and they've it's just not a really, really strong black community there anymore. Um, and that's that's what makes the, uh, the Elm Hill picnic. And so there are a number of black events here that that occur, and, and uh, they're important. I mean, they maintain a sense of community, but it's the, the numbers just aren't... It's not like Nova Scotia where you still have a vibrant, the term like Aboriginal or um, Indigenous, Indigenous, yeah. Indigenous Black community. Yeah. Here now we're like you in Fredericton is a vibrant uh, immigrant community now. Yeah. So it's it's really taken on more of an Afro Afro Caribbean flavor really for for the Black community, and that's great. I have no like it's it's great to see to lit like it's it's a long time coming to be in a community in which you know, I can walk down the street and see a number of people who look like yep. that. Yeah. Right? Um, but where the indigenous black community is starting to get lost in the overall story 
and that uh, just we just don't have enough. Uh, and that's so, why we're doing this because it's similar, right? I mean, in Nova Scotia, we know that the the major influx of blacks are immigrants. Um, yeah. Our indigenous Nova Scotian population, as we know, Larice and Graham, it's in decline. Dwindling. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, on the segregation, when we come to like naming of town, what's the significance when we talk about segregation there or racism? And is there a lasting effect there? Um, well, we had, uh, I think you guys are now, Nova Scotia is going through the same process, but we went a few years ago, we went through the process of removing any sort of racialized place names from use. Mm-hmm. And so there were, there were a number of places that, you know, had, I think five or something like that. And there may be more, but so the, that's the lasting effect of, of the past in on a map, at least, is it were these like N word brook. Or, yeah. Yeah. Me. And so, it, I mean, it's like everywhere you have like, we know there are a number of black settlements, old black settlements, and now they're not, they just don't exist anymore. There might be one or two black families yeah. there or right. a really dark looking curly haired white people. And, uh, so, <laughs> so it's just the, the, you have to look, you really have to look closely to sort of get the connections. And there are a number of them, and we're, I mean, the, the work here is, there's been some good scholarship, there's some really good historians here who are bringing all this stuff up, and, um, we're just really pushing forward with, I mean, it, it, here it's coupled with, with, uh, activism we had a uh, ludlow hall here odell house here has uh had had slave quarters in it um and he's like i mean he's a pretty high profile loyalist guy mm-hmm. and so it's caused some i mean just rethinking of like yeah we used to have chains in our attic i wonder why that was right and yeah and those sorts of things so umb had funded its early years by basically slave labor and Ludlow was a had basically made a judgment. So in 1808 we had, or no, 1802, and so we had a it's called the Nancy trial, and Ludlow reinforced slavery based on property law. Really, the university just named it like it's like 1969 when they named it, and it was like, who are we going to name it? Ludlow was was an early loyalist judge. We'll name it after him without any consideration of what that meant. Just looking at the communities itself and the population, and we kind of t- touched on this as well, too. We know the indigenous black population is declining there, but where do you think they're going? I kind of have a sense of where they're going, but do you want to just maybe elaborate on that, where they're going now? I think that we're just going to disappear. I think in terms of a visible minority, we're getting lighter and moving away or being absorbed into into a wider black community, right? So. I think the identity, I mean, that's the remarkable thing is since 2020, the black identity and the quest for a revised history, there's, there's some great, like, there's great stuff happening up uh-huh. here. There's a guy named, uh, Thunderway McCarthy, who's a poet. He'd be a dude to talk to because he's, he's powerful. There's, like, his mom, Mary, Mary McCarthy, is an academic uh, activist, and she is basically maintaining black graveyards here. Interesting. So these communities have disappeared, but the graveyards are still there. Wow. And so she's right. she's made made it her mission to sort of make sure that people understand these communities existed and these families were important. Um, you have uh, Ralph Thomas, who's with uh, Prude in St. John. He's like the elder, right? He he's a statesman for the black community in New Brunswick, 
and he's managed through all of the stuff that he's probably had to deal with in his 80 years plus has managed to keep a super positive attitude and he's got colleagues from that generation we have this vibrant black community who's done a lot of stuff historically and and recently but it's sort of starting to be drowned out by uh, activists for the wider black community as well who from the outside people say oh well they're all the same but the issues are different that's the problem yeah with the blackness yeah you know all in grouping us all together right and our experience is is, is very yeah. different in that sense so i mean given everything that we've uh just talked about uh, which, you know, is, is very significant to say the least. Uh, gaining a new understanding of, you know, New Brunswick and St. John and, you know, their, you know, connection to, you know, black loyalists, more broadly, like Canadian history when it comes to, you know, black migrations. Uh, what message would you like to share for with future generations about the significance uh, of this history in New Brunswick? I would say that to understand the black story, the black loyalist story, you have to understand, you have to have one foot in Nova Scotia and one foot in New Brunswick because things are happening across the region. There's no, like to our people back then, there was no border, mm -hmm. right? And, and you have to, I mean, I guess you have to put a hand over in, uh, in Prince Edward Island as well to understand the play between these societies and what's going on and how, how, People are why, how, and why people are moving around. What the connections are, you know uh, yourself, Sean. That that we have Nova Scotian preachers going up into New Brunswick, and New Brunswick has preachers coming down. Like yeah, Shelburne, there's a you know there there's a black preacher from a uh, Walker. Well, I can't remember yeah. what his first name is. Who's from from St. John? Yeah, and so we had a rich network of vibrant black communities that that never saw themselves as separate. It's only yeah. now that it, we seem different, but so true, home. right? It's really true. Thank you for listening to the loyalist connections podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and gained some new insights. This episode was produced by your host, Maurice Gabriel Downey and myself, Sean Smith of the loyalist connections creative group. We want to send out a special thanks to our community partners, the black cultural center and the Black Loyalist Heritage Center and Society for their continued support. And shout out our alma mater, St. Mary's University, especially the St. Mary's University Goresbrook Research Institute Partnership for making resources available to us to complete this project. We encourage you to join us as we continue to host these meaningful conversations and uncover information on our communities and other important aspects of our history. In the meantime, don't forget to listen, like, follow and share the loyalist connection podcast on all your favorite platforms and be sure to follow us on instagram at loyalist connection podcast for updates and behind the scenes content and until the next episode stay, stay connected, connected.